1: and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
0: like after you forget the name of someone you just met or when you realize you forgot to get something on your grocery list? Well, not so fast. While too much forgetting can be a sign of a problem, you don't really want to remember everything either. Some forgetting, it turns out, can be healthy. So says our guest today, Dr. Scott Small. He's a neurologist, the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University, and the author of a new book called Forgetting, The Benefits of Not Remembering. We've asked him to talk to us today about why we forget, when it's a problem, and striking a healthy balance between memory and forgetting.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: In your new book, you note that some forgetting is actually healthy, though we may not always think of it that way. Um, How so?
2: Um, Yeah, and and I I think it's important at the get-go to emphasize that we're talking about normal forgetting, forgetting we're born with, the forgetting we have for most of our lives. Uh, as a doctor who treats patients with pathological forgetting, Alzheimer's and aging and other disorders, we're not here talking about that. Uh, and so then the question is, if we have normal forgetting, we're born with normal forgetting, is it just a nuisance? Evolution hasn't caught up to our information rich environment uh, like an appendix? That should be deleted such that we have photographic memory. That's an interesting question that really uh, triggered this book.
0: So tell us about the differences between healthy forgetting and unhealthy forgetting.
2: It's an interesting question. Uh, Of course, what's disease, what's health, what's not. I think in in my field, uh, the operational definition is if your forgetting or memory, let's say your memory, worsens. From your baseline, such that it's affecting your day-to-day function, that's unhealthy, uh, and what I call pathological forgetting. The most common causes of that are either the normal wear and tear of the aging process or Alzheimer's disease.
0: I see. So basically, if it's if it's a change that you notice or a change maybe your friends and family notice in your in your memory, then that's when you need to start thinking about those types of, of problems that you might have.
2: That's right. And uh, often when people hear I'm a memory investigator in social settings, that's not what they're complaining to me about. They're <laughs> complaining about, I'd like to have better memory. So I could uh, you remember poems or quote statistics, uh, win political debates with more <laughs> information in my mind. I'd like to have better memory. I'd like to get rid of my forgetting.
0: So some people say, sounds like you hear this all the time. Some people say they wish they had a photographic memory or maybe they claim to have one, but you disagree. Uh, why is that?
2: Yeah, that's, that's what's interesting. And it's particularly interesting to me as a uh, person whose uh, whole career has been based on the assumption that more memory is always better and forgetting is always bad. That is the essence of what I do for a living. Uh, And the new science of forgetting that really has just emerged in the last 10 years has shown first and foremost that the mechanisms in our brain that mediate forgetting and memory, healthy, normal forgetting and healthy, normal memory are distinct. In other words, it used to be thought that Uh, when I forget something, there's something malfunctioning in my memory. It's the rusting of memory. It's the same mechanism, but it's just not working very well. That's not the case. Nature has endowed us with two separate control knobs. One that regulates our forgetting and the other that regulates our uh, memory. And then the question is, why is that? And if that balance is struck, that uh, turns out to be uh, the healthiest way To live in a complicated world that is all often um, blooming and buzzing with information and often often painful. Uh, And it's striking that balance between normal memory and normal forgetting that turns out to be beneficial.
0: Right. In your book, here is a quick word from our sponsor.
1: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
0: In the book you write about when memories are really hard to turn off or turn down, uh, like for people who are dealing with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Are these cases where more forgetting would actually help these people, or? Is it not that we need to so much forget those things as maybe handle them differently or figure out how to how to cope with them differently in in life?
2: Yeah. So you know, I I am a um, neurobiologist. I am a doctor. So I think in that kind of um, heuristic, and in that sense, one of the benefits of understanding now the mechanisms of normal forgetting uh, is that we can now better appreciate that there actually are disorders that are caused by too little forgetting. And PTSD is the easiest example. There are other examples, but it's the easiest one. We now know, for example, that there's a part of the brain where fear memories, emotional memories are stored. And we now know that PTSD is that part of the brain being hyperactive. Mm -hmm. And so Knowing the mechanisms, we can actually look back and think about treatments for things like PTSD or other um, uh, disorders um, that require a certain degree of forgetting, whether it's a phobia, how do you treat phobias? It's through desensitization. Desensitization is a fancy word for saying forgetting. PTSD is best treated by trying to, uh, reduce the hyperactive emotional memory centers that's another way of saying forgetting
0: I see Speaking of you know this sort of the healthy type of forgetting that that all of us do how does the brain decide what to turn into a lasting memory and what to forget There are some you know like um, I think a common example people might think of is women who go through childbirth you know they you know as years go on maybe they don't so much remember, that it was, you know, painful or difficult. And so they, you know, because if you remembered that, maybe you would never want to go through that again. But, you know, if you forget, then maybe that's to a beneficial thing. So how do you figure out what to make a lasting memory and what to actually let go of? You mean, so to speak, how does the brain... Does yes. That, not, yes. yeah. The brain yeah. figure that out. Yeah. Well,
2: I mean, first of all, we know that the brain sometimes gets it wrong, right? You have PTSD, you have other disorders that are sometimes the fancy word is hyper too much memory. Um, but in the normal sense, there are certain rules that the uh, brain and neurons follow in terms of deciding, so to speak. When to strengthen connections across neurons, which is, a, which is a, a, a kind of a cellular definition of memory, and when to relax those connections. And they have to do with the repetitive, you know, just any time someone studies for an exam, they inherently know what increases that strength. So, repetition, uh, trying to elaborate on the memory to increase the binding of different neurons across the brain, that would be memory. Uh, And then in kind, people now have begun to identify what are the um, rules of life that seem to result in our brain deciding not to remember. So if something happens once, it might not be worth remembering. Uh, If something is not important, it might not be worth remembering. And an interesting thing about sleep is that sleep now is thought to be uh, a time in our day where our brain actively forgets. And mm. it's the things that are least important that tend to be forgotten.
0: That's very interesting. Um, is the brain actually doing something different when it comes to like, you know, the, the cellular level um, in order to forget, so to speak? Is it, does it treat things differently or c- do we know that at this point?
2: Yes no that and that, that is the in a way the essence of this new science in other words, um, if you think uh, to simplify it, two neurons connect with each other if that connection is strengthened, that's a simplified uh, way to save memory and if that connection is loosened, that's forgetting Now we what the field has identified is different molecular mechanisms, what I call in the book, different toolboxes that, are, that, that, that comprise nanomachines that when the neurons decide to remember, they activate one toolbox, the memory toolbox, and in a very careful and deliberate way, we construct new connections across two different neurons or across millions of neurons, ultimately, of course for forgetting, there's a completely different toolbox, a different set of molecules, nanomachines, that once the um, brain, so to speak, decides to forget, it disassembles that connection. So you have this happening all the time in your brain. And just think about it, you know, you and I are talking, hopefully a lot of this we'll both remember, but there are many things happening around us uh, all the time. And our brain is always recording uh, a constant flow of incoming information. Most of it uh, is not worth remembering. And so for those kind of things, it's the forgetting toolbox that's activated uh, and not the memory toolbox.
0: That's fascinating. What does it look like for someone to have that sort of healthy balance between remembering and forgetting? Like in daily life, a healthy balance that you would strike between what you know the, the memories you would want to hang on to from a day versus what you would want to just let go of
2: yeah i mean i think you know it's it's interesting uh now that we understand this a lot better it happens so naturally and so continuously that we don't probably even notice that it's happening so it's always interesting to come up with extreme examples where it's not happening to illustrate what happens normally and perhaps subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And if we if we said earlier that one of the reasons for sleep, not the only reason, um, is to induce wholesale forgetting across our cortical fields, uh, then I'm not sure if you've ever been sleep deprived. I have on a rare occasion. And when you're sleep deprived, you really experience the deleterious effect uh, of too little forgetting when that balance is thrown off kilter.
0: That's interesting. You must get people asking you all the time about their memory glitches, and whether it's anything to be concerned about. I think you even mentioned that just a moment ago. Uh, How do you handle that? (laughs) uh, When it comes to, you know, social interactions? What do, do you have just some boilerplate advice that you you tell everybody who's maybe a little concerned about their memory? Yes. (laughs) Yes <laughs> and, that's helpful.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I say that with an emphatic uh, exclamation mark because this was not the main motive of the book writing the book. Ah. But one of the secondary gains is, as you've alluded to, it sometimes becomes tedious to become a memory to be a memory expert, an Alzheimer' doctor who goes to social settings and you <laughs> want to talk about literature, arts, p- politics, sports and all. The other person wants to talk about is complaining about their forgetting. So now I can say, engage your forgetting. It's beneficial as long as it's normal um, and uh, don't fight it. Uh, now, that's a little glib. Uh, of course, there are certain professions, perhaps, where having really exceptional memory for certain things, uh, you know. I went to medical school. I remember classmates who could remember the cranial nerves much faster than I. So there are benefits to having better memory, and there are ways of potentially improving that. But on a general basis, uh, I think that maybe if there's one punchline of the book, um, we all occasionally uh, wonder about the superpower of photographic memory. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we can be like our computers or our cell phones and take a snapshot and remember everything forever? Uh, The punchline of the book is that would be a nightmare.
0: I can see how that would definitely
2: be the case. (laughs) If I can say, if I can add one other thing, not it's interesting. Yes, I am an Alzheimer's expert. I develop, I try to develop therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease, but as I've been talking to some healthcare professionals, They say, yes, we need forgetting pills, not memory pills. And the two two groups, one are, of course, psychiatrists who treat PTSD and other phobias. But the other one, which is a little bit funnier, I think, are marital therapists. Marital marital therapists say, Scott, if you develop a forgetful pill, call me. (laughs) My practice will boom.
0: (laughs) I know a lot of people who who could possibly benefit from something like that. Um,
2: we all do. We all do.
0: so I do want to talk about a couple of the things, um, that, you know, some of the habits that we do every day that could be good or bad for our brains and our memory. And I think you've, we've talked a little bit about sleep so far, but I wanted to just mention a couple of others and get your, get your take on them. Um, what about your diet and, you know, the things that you eat every day?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. On So I, I think you're asking, Carrie, about ways to improve our memory, not to improve our forgetting. So Correct. Yes. There, there, there are ways, and, and now I'm going to answer the question in the spirit of this engaging discussion on improving our normal memory, not trying to improve someone who has Alzheimer's disease. That's a separate issue. Are there ways of improving our normal memory for people who do want better memory? And that's completely legitimate. So I deal with that a lot. I am of the view that the better way to engage that question is through lifestyle and nutrition. In other words, there might be a drug company that develops a memory pill for everyone. You know, a a high school student wants to ace their SATs, they take a pill, they do better. I think there's some bioethical issues there. I also know that uh, because of the way the brain is constructed and because of plasticity, which is the term we use for memory is so built into our memory into our brains capabilities. That there must be lifestyle and nutrient ways of improving memory and we already know some of them so physical exercise definitely helps memory. And in fact, I've contributed to that body of literature. It improves hippocampal function. Cognitive exercise probably does as well. On nutrients, that's an active area of my research. Uh, We are looking at things like flavanols, things that are found in fruits and chocolates and things that seem to improve memory. But the one thing I don't want to mislead, nothing really has been shown to be clear-cut yet. I'm sure it's out there, just because I know so much about how the brain is so eager to remember that there's going to be a way to harness that capability, uh, whether it's cognitive exercises, physical exercises, or nutrition, but uh, that still works in progress, to be fair, to the field, I think.
0: That makes sense. I'm sure we'll find out more in the coming years, certainly, as a lot of this research goes on. Yep, I believe that. What about other things, um, like how strong your social network is? For example, would that have a beneficial effect on 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 memory?
2: That's a great question. It would have a beneficial effect on both beneficial memory and beneficial forgetting. Hmm. By which I mean that we know that um, depression could worsen your memory, and particularly in the patient populations I treat, older individuals who are suddenly, you know, moved to a new environment, friends are dying, loneliness is a trigger of depression. Depression will definitely worsen your memory. On the flip side, uh, the chapter that I did write on PTSD, uh, I wrote uh, with guidance from a PTSD expert. And what I learned from him is that one of the strong risk factors for PTSD is loneliness. Mm. And in fact, one of the ways to quench the hyperactive emotional memories after a trauma is to stay social. And in fact, it turns out that uh, for many uh, soldiers who come back with PTSD or, or with trauma, not yet PTSD, they increase the risk by being lonely uh, and alone. And so socializing is super important uh, on both sides of this uh, seesaw.
0: Interesting. It's almost like you're taking up space in your brain, perhaps if I could, I'm sure it doesn't actually work this way, but taking up space in your brain with other things and diminishing those more traumatic um, memories that might trouble you.
2: Yeah. I mean, if i if I may Carrie, you know, so I I think I've, um, I've declared my biases. I'm a reductionist. I believe in, you know, cells and molecules. That's how I focus on Alzheimer's disease. But in that one chapter on PTSD, I ended in a way that I never thought I would you know articulate something that it turns out that the best way to contain fear memories from running amuck from burning too hot hot is yes there might be drugs and yet there might be therapy therapies but stay engaged socially uh, and live a life uh, glittered with love and happiness and that's the kind of um, summary that even now I, 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 I smile when I say it, because it's never something I thought I would say as a sort of a hardcore scientist. But yes, right. stay socially engaged.
0: Wow. Um, what about some of the things that we know have um, a negative effect on memory? Health conditions like high blood pressure or um, high blood sugar and stress, smoking, all of those kinds of things. How do those affect your memory?
2: Right, so those are all on the list of risk factors that can accelerate things that will cause pathological forgetting, whether it's strokes in later life or even Alzheimer's disease. It's a strong risk factor for Alzheimer's to have all what you just described, the sort of classic cardiovascular risk factors. And so um, before until we have true therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease, which we still do not, uh, the easy recommendation uh, when patients, or actually not patients, when people ask me when I lecture publicly, is try to stay cardiovascularly healthy. It's a little disappointing when I give that advice, because it's like a mother's advice. It's sort of like the advice every doctor gives for every patient, right? right. Don't, <laughs> don't smoke, stay active. But for Alzheimer's and strokes, things that cause pathological forgetting, the evidence is, is, is clearly there.
0: We come back to those fundamentals a lot on this podcast, um, but it's because they're so true and they affect so many things. Maybe it's not what people want to hear, but... um,
2: And it's it's what we can do, and we should definitely listen to that. It's, It's often easier to give that advice, but people should try. Certainly.
0: I do want to ask you about memory disorders. Is it that the person can't access memories that are somewhere, you know, stored in their brain's files the memories aren't, aren't gone, but maybe they're harder to access, or do they actually just go away within the brain?
2: So actually that gets to the sort of understanding of how memory works. And memory works in a very, very simplistic sense, which I use as an analogy in the book, like our computers. So, and it's not a coincidence, that natural engineers and computer engineers came up with the same solution of how to manage, store, and retrieve complex information. So if you type something on your computer and you want to save it, you click your save function, that's what the hippocampus does loosely. This is all simplification, but it's Generally true. If you come back tomorrow and want to find that one document among your thousands of documents, you need to click open, right? And that's a function that's observed generally by the frontal cortex. And then finally, there's the hard drive. The hard drive is distributed, but basically it's in the back of the brain in the cortical areas in the back of the brain. And there are different disorders in kind that will target different structures of the brain. And that's exactly what we do in our memory disorders clinic. A patient of course is not expected to know uh, the neuroanatomy or the molecular biology of memory. They complain of forgetting. What we try to do is localize its it. Is it a storage problem is it a retrieval problem is it a saving problem once we can localize it to the right part of the brain we're much more likely to get the diagnosis right
0: and you can actually determine that do you determine that with like memory tests or cognitive tests or do you do like brain imaging that helps you figure that out
2: uh, actually, both um, I actually do a lot of brain imaging, uh, but it is still true. The best way to do that is with uh, memory tests. The formal term is neuropsychological tests that formally interrogate different parts of the uh, of the brain computer to see what 's broken uh, and Imaging could help if you want to see evidence of stroke or other diseases. There are some sophisticated imaging techniques that look at functional patterns, blood flow, and that also could be helpful. But we always start with cognition, with memory.
0: That makes sense. That's fascinating. As a neurologist, what do you want people to do when they have concerns about their memory? You know, they've realized that it's, they're having more trouble with, you know, healthy memory or healthy forgetting. When should they contact their doctor? At what point?
2: Well, of course, that's a personal decision. I, I, I do think that um, it is good to contact a doctor, because there are actually rare cases of, of of these disorders that are easily treatable. In other words, I've heard a nihilistic view of people saying, "Oh my God, I'm noticing forgetting. It's probably Alzheimer's. I don't want to know." And that's an interesting discussion, maybe for another time, Carrie. Until we have a treatment, someone might want to take that view. I think it's wrong, but there are treatable conditions, whether it's vitamin deficiencies or rare infections, um, strokes that could be prevented in the future. So if you really notice a change from the past, um, and it doesn't cost a lot of your time or money, I think it's worth seeing a doctor to evaluate what's the etiology.
0: That's interesting, because I think a lot of people might think, well, I'm getting older, you know, this is to be expected, or maybe their family members might might feel that way. But sounds like you're saying it's worth looking into, you know, the cause and seeing if there's something that can be done.
2: I I do think so. Obviously if it's subtle and it's not really affecting one's function, you know, uh, but if it turns out to be that you might, you, I I would like to know that. When I get asked that question by many people, I I do make that recommendation because you never really know what the cause is. Uh, Certainly if it becomes worse and worse, then I think patients realize or people realize that it's not just sort of this, 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 this aging process. But even aging, you want to know, because there'll soon be interventions for that. So I I do think knowledge is always better. And uh, again, uh, unfortunately, in the medical American healthcare system, uh, cost matters. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. If it doesn't, if it's not too costly, I think it's worth seeing your doctor.
0: Is there a way to give people an idea of how much change is normal when it comes to, you know, age-related memory concerns?
2: yeah that's a a good question um we can do that formally in the neuropsych tests because we these are tests that have been given to hundreds of thousands of people so we can actually
0: compare here is a quick word from our sponsor
1: we take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the nespod studios Enjoy the show.
2: ...your performance to what we can expect from someone like you, you know, your, your gender, your degree of education, your socioeconomic background, etc. cetera. On, on, in terms of, I think what you're asking about is red flags, <coughs> which I think is perhaps at the essence of your question. Yes. So people say, look, if I, if I just have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, I'm not worried is there something that would tell me that it might be Alzheimer's? Because then you really should see a doctor. You know, these are rule of thumbs recommendations. One of the things that uh, when I get calls from around the world, friends, family, or distant uh, acquaintances, and they, they want to know, I, I do have some things I listen for. So if, someone, if someone's forgetting names or words or stuff like that, it's hard to know. I still think it's good to try to know. But if someone is getting lost, so it's interesting about spatial memory. Spatial memory is usually a red flag uh, for something above and beyond just normal aging. Not always, and I, and I wanna make sure that your audience understands that this is just a very uh, general rule of thumb. But if you really feel like while you're driving, you truly get lost or you walk in the street, not the kind of normal forgetting sometimes happens when we don't pay attention. Uh, you get lost frequently, more and more frequently. I, I, I would, I consider that a red flag. That's, that's when I sort of press a little harder on uh, people when they ask me whether they should see a doctor. I think at that point, you really should.
0: Okay, that's good to know. Let's shift to another topic that has been in the headlines a lot recently. Um, the FDA recently approved a new drug aducanumab for Alzheimer's disease, and this was a controversial decision. Uh, the company that makes the drug is required to do more research now to show that it works. But now that the drug is approved, are you already getting patients who are asking you about it? And what is your take on how doctors will weigh who gets the medication?
2: You know, I am, <laughs> another exclamation mark, <laughs> getting a lot of regrets. <laughs> I'm also because I'm part of the leadership at Columbia. We're helping doctors and patients and families manage this. I'm going to leave aside the the, the vitriol over the process. That's not really my main concern.
0: Mm-hmm. Wearing
2: my physician hat, I worry most about my patients and families, not mine, but any patient and families, and helping doctors who maybe not are as close to the to the to the science as I am. Uh, and you use a perfect verb. You say weigh the way, uh, the decisions I think you mean, and that's exactly the issue and the potential problem. So it it could be boiled down to the following. Um, the FDA and everyone agrees that this drug, which essentially removes amyloid plaques from the brain and other drugs like it, uh, doesn't seem to affect memory and cognition. And we just talked about why that's first and foremost, but what it does do is clear plaques from the brain, right? That is beyond a doubt. And then what you're relying on is your beliefs, because unfortunately it's in the realm of belief on whether you, as a physician, believe that clearing amyloid plaques is gonna be meaningful. In other words, clinical trials are complicated. There's always the argument that maybe the right Population wasn't looked at. It wasn't looked at long enough. They didn't have the right tools. But if you believe like some do that amyloid plaques is truly the, the, the fire that causes Alzheimer's, you might be inclined to give it in any case. And so the way I've tried to help my colleagues with this and myself, as I talk to patients and families is if you're a physician, so, so basically you can boil it down to three groups. There are a group of physicians and scientists who truly believe that amyloid plaques are the driver of all of Alzheimer's disease. If you believe that, you'd be inclined to give it, and there's no argument against it. In other words, until we do more science and test this, and that's the problem, it hasn't been done properly yet. If you're in the other extreme, not the the other group, I don't, I shouldn't say extreme, where you, and and there are plenty of people in both, in all these camps I'm gonna describe. So the first camp, you believe that amyloid plaques is truly the proximal fire that's causing Alzheimer's disease, you, you would be justified ethically to prescribe this. Certainly in early stages of Alzheimer's, not late, late stages, and we can come back to that if you want. If you're in the other group, equally smart people I know in the halls of academia, these debates rage on all the time, who say plaques are just the smoke, not the fire, and it's just smoke that is not detrimental. And if you really believe that as a physician, you probably are gonna be disinclined to give the drug. The the hardest group to sort through this decision-making is the group that I belong to. And that's the group of uh, scientists and physicians who do believe that amyloid plaques is a smoke. It's not the fire. We don't think it's the proximal cause of all of Alzheimer's, but it's clearly the smoke and it could be potentially Uh, detrimental. So so to to belabor the metaphor, smoke itself could be detrimental. But then you're stuck with this idea that there might be some mild benefit clearing smoke versus the cost. And in this case, the cost is serious side effects. The costs are tens of thousands of dollars. The costs are not being able to travel because you need to go to a, a hospital to get infusions and MRIs. And that's a really, really tough decision to sort through. And so that's where I think doctors are going to have to spend a lot of time talking through their, with their patients and family members on what they believe and what's best best for each patient. I hope that wasn't too long winded.
0: Not at all. It's interesting that you you're using this term "believe" because, which is not a term that we that you often use, I think, in in medicine and making these decisions. Because what you're saying is. There is no hard science that shows the role yes. of these yeah. plaques in, in memory problems.
2: Th- thanks for picking up on that, Terry. And in, in, in the blogs where I write about this, and, and the, I, I actually say that. I say, unfortunately, we can't rely on the rigors of experimental medicine to make decision making, which is what you just described. You know, we know COVID vaccinations should be given. Um, but because that hasn't been achieved yet, and because it's been approved, the doctors are in the, in the realm of belief. It's a little bit more than belief. It's belief anchored in science. It's not just a sort of a, a religious belief. But it hasn't yet met the standards of rigorous scientists to know for sure uh, whether clearing these plaques is going to be beneficial at all. And that's, 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 and by the way, the burden now is on the physicians just because we're going to have to be, and as you asked appropriately, I'm getting calls all the time. What should I do? What should I do? And it's, I don't blame patients.
0: Well, that's a tough spot to be in as a physician. I'm sure to make these decisions when you don't have those hard facts that you're used to relying on. I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier. Is there a point at which it's too late to give someone this drug too late in the course of Alzheimer's disease?
2: The, you know, it's interesting. That's where there seems to be a general consensus. And you can imagine there's very little of that in my field. <laughs> uh, and that is um, that no one... So I think you know that Alzheimer's is a slowly progressive disorder. It starts as mild forgetting, then there's dementia, and then there's profound dementia. I, I don't think anyone believes that clearing plaques in end stages of Alzheimer's is going to make a, a dramatic difference. The real debate is in the earliest stages of Alzheimer's disease, will this be um, beneficial? And it's interesting if you really do look at the clinical trials, they weren't beneficial, but if you really try to squint and see some benefit, the benefit was only in really a subpopulation of patients that had relatively early Alzheimer's. And it was just a a gradual slowing of the progression. The progression kept on going, but it slowed it down. And again, we're not in the sort of, dichotomous decision-making, yes, no, black, white, it's sort of fuzzy. And and that contributes to the um, difficulty in decision-making.
0: I see. I suppose before we let you go, is there anything else about forgetting that you think people uh, don't understand or that you wish people understood better?
2: Uh, well, thank you for that open-ended question. Um, Very
0: open-ended, but.
2: <laughs> oh, no, no, those are the best kinds, as long as I, 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 I talk to the point. I, 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 think, I think the intuitive benefit of forgetting is for emotional forgetting, as we've discussed. Um, I think on creativity, there's, a, there's an interesting chapter on that. It helps creativity, which I didn't really fully appreciate. The part that I found most interesting which in some ways um is less intuitive is that forgetting helps us with our fundamental cognition in other words the uh, saying is you know being able to distinguish the forest from the trees and that's what's called in the, in the field generalization, a, a gestalt, right? So we all walk around in life and life is full of a lot of complex information. Our brain is always uh, generalizing and you need forgetting to generalize. And it's so interesting. There are some rare cases of people who can't and they, kept, they keep on perseverating on the parts and not the whole. Uh, and uh, that's something that just happens so naturally to us that we don't even realize that that's the gift of forgetting. Uh, And it it, it, it turns out that if you had no forgetting, you probably wouldn't be able to walk down a busy street because it would just just induce cognitive chaos. So I do think generalization, the ability um, to extract holes from parts requires forgetting. And that to me, I think is the least obvious and the most interesting part of forgetting.
0: Well, the book is called Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. Dr. Scott Small, thank you so much for joining today. It was really a fascinating uh, conversation.
2: Thanks for the excellent questions, Carrie, and thanks for inviting me. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.
1: This will conclude the episode.